presenting sponsor for this week's episode of the Velo News podcast is PowerTap, makers of the P1 power meter pedals. Spencer, these power meter pedals are pretty cool. You can switch them from one bike to the next. You can travel with them, and they're pretty accurate. Let's play a little word association game. What huh. words do you associate with these P1 pedals, Spencer? I'd, I'd say proven. Okay, third-party tested, uh, very accurate, yes. Nice, nice. I'd say robust. Uh, also a good word. These pedals, you can strike curbs, rocks, sticks. They're not going to break. They are the only pedal-mounted power meter with a totally enclosed design. Hey, that's good for you. I would also say they're very serviceable. Yeah, you can slip one AAA battery into each pedal. For 60 hours of ride time, 60 hours, that's like a mid-sized ride for you. Oh, come on, Fred. I wouldn't. Yeah, maybe. Maybe 60, lunch 65, ride. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> They're also really versatile, Fred. You could take them on any bike you own, travel with them. It's really easy. You don't have to worry about, all you have to worry about is putting the pedal on your bike. Yeah. And then you have your power data right there. So thanks to PowerTap and the P1 pedals. Let's get on with the show. You are tuned into the Velo News podcast it's Phil Guyman's world. We're all just living in it. Spencer Paulson here with Fred Dreyer. Spencer, what's what's going on with you today? Hey, well, uh, I'm just trying to trying to get my way through this draft animals book that yeah. you assigned. I got some homework. You assigned me a big big book to read. We have been reading through Phil Guyman's memoir, Draft Animals: Living the Pro Cycling Dream Once in a While, and we're but about. Two-thirds of the way done, three-quarters of the way done. Yeah, about halfway. About halfway. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about that on today's episode because this book has been causing all sorts of buzz. Very controversial. In the cycling world. A lot of controversy, a lot of Twitter, Facebook, a lot of social buzz around this. Uh, We're also going to be talking about tell-all books in general. Just the role that these pieces of media play in our understanding of cycling. Uh, second half of the show, we're going to be talking about some of the news going on in cycling right now. We have uh, <laughs> eh, not much, not, <laughs> not much, much news actually. Pretty quiet time of the year. We got some talk about replacement riders. Movie That's star right. bus. That's right. Hoodie yeah. on that story over at the Movie Star Camp. He's on the line today. Uh, we had Hoodie talk with Swainy Tuft about just like fighting wolves with hockey sticks and other amazing stories. Normal Canadian stuff, I think. And then we just have the off season. That's Bunch right. of riders not riding their bikes. Uh, with Spencer Paulson, we're joined today from Spain by Andrew Hood. Andy, I have po- poke you. You wake on the other side, other end of the phone. There, what's going on? I'm in the hoodie man cave here, trying to stay warm. Uh, Winter is settled in here in Europe. Did you buy any Bitcoin since the last time we talked to you? I know that that was you're lamenting not having purchased any Bitcoin. No, I, I have not. I've been you know, on that perennial fence. I think I'll be there for a while. It's too expensive. It just goes up and down every day. My heart's not uh, strong enough for that. What about any other cryptocurrency out there? Maybe cycling needs some type of cryptocurrency that we could uh, use to like buy, I don't know, like like pirated dark web bike parts from each other. That's a good idea. Yeah. We could do uh, we could do some uh, do some of that uh, you know coding and create our own little bit currency and uh, become millionaires. Isn't Igor Marakov, the owner of the Katusha team, some sort of banker, some sort of banking magnate from Russia? Is, is that right, or am I totally? Yeah, maybe that up? we could pitch him some ideas, some Shark Tank like um, cryptocurrency ideas for cycling. He seems like a nice guy. I bet he'd be open to it. Uh, well, after reading the first two-thirds of Phil Guyman's book, my guess is that cycling needs some type of cryptocurrency to pay for all of the uh, various sins that go on at various levels of the sport. Uh, let's get into it, Spencer. So we're both powering through Phil Guyman's book. Phil Guyman's book was released, I believe, a week, a week and a half ago. It took a few days uh, being on the shelves until someone noticed that there was a section in there in which Phil just so casually mentioned that he believed Fabian Cancellara had been using a motor when he won Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders. And that lit the internet on fire because I believe it was cycling news reached out to UCI President David Lapartien to get comment on this. I'm sure the conversation went something like this. I'll be the reporter, you be Lapartien. Mr. Lapartien, have you read Phil Guyman's book and seen the uh, section about Fabian Cancellara and 
alleged motor use. Uh, who is uh, Phil Gaiman? <laughs> who is Phil Gaiman? Good answer on that one. I'm sure Lepartienne had no idea who Phil Gaiman was. No offense, Phil, but you know there's a lot of pro riders out there. But I bet it really did whet Lepartienne's appetite yeah. to chase down some motor cheaters because we all know that's kind of his thing right now. He's very, very interested in chasing down these people who hide motors in their bikes. Oh yeah. According to this guy, that's a big problem in pro cycling. Maybe it is. I don't know. Huge, but it seems huge like problem. one of the arguments Phil makes on Twitter and on his social media is that. This is kind of a red herring argument in that it distracts from some of the bigger issues of pro cycling. So Laparte made a comment. The internet exploded. Stories went all over the place. And within, oh, the, basically four days, like Conchalara was having his lawyers request that the book stop being sold. He requested a formal apology. Yeah, that was yesterday. Had yep. Noisblad reported on that, the Belgian newspaper. And, um, I mean, you can you can understand why Fabian Cancellara is still very involved in the sport. You see him in, you know, full page ads for like Gore Bikeware. He's a he's a product ambassador for them. It's a, it's a thing. So uh, it would it would look bad for him if if he keeps getting called out for this supposed misdoing in the uh, misdeed in the in the 2010 Tour of Flanders. Uh, this morning, Guyman released. A statement of his own. It's very long. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'll read the first few lines. In Draft Animals, I repeated a rumor that's well-documented and many years old, and I presented it as such. I stand by my opinion. It's exactly that. And anyone who actually opened the book would know that what I said was far from an accusation. I put a gun to my head, and that's what I believe. So I'd be a liar if I left it out. But I claim no revelations or proof, so I don't see it being taken off the shelves except by the folks buying it so that is the most sorry you got upset with what sorry sorry sorry, not sorry sorry not sorry sorry you got upset with my opinion um answer to that one and that's where we we leave it i'm sure there's going to be new news wrinkles that come out in the ensuing days uh potentially you know we're just gonna have to see where this goes um, but anyway, that is our long-winded kickoff point for talking about Phil Guyman's book. My other caveat is that, you know, full disclosure here, I like Phil. Uh, I've done some number of interviews with him. Uh, I've had him on this podcast before. I value his per- perspective on pro cycling. There were definitely things in this book that that I didn't particularly like. But, you know, I I think Phil's a good guy. It's going to be really interesting to see what his relationships are like in the sport after the publishing of this book. But, you know, he he put it all out there. So let's get into it, Spencer. What are what would you say is the point of this book? And what's your overall take from how far you've gotten into draft animals? I think it, it's sort of a to me, this book, it feels like half of it is is trying to pull back the curtain on what happens behind the scenes as a pro cyclist in terms of things like contract negotiation, race scheduling, all that type of sort of nitty gritty that doesn't exactly always show up in the stories you read on Velo News or other other websites or magazines. Now, the other half of the book, to me, feels like, I don't know, it, it just it came off as kind of bitter and a little mm-hmm. petty. And to me, it feels like Guyman just kind of is... I, he's daring a lot of grievances and oh, yeah. he's taken a lot of shots at people that he's ridden with or been on the team with before and that sort of thing. It's uh, it's a weird approach to me because like you said, this could affect the way he has the way his relationships within the cycling industry are going forward. And we all know he's still very involved. He's doing his, his KOM thing where he's chasing KOMs, doing his YouTube videos. He's still, you know, sponsored by a variety of, of cycling companies. And some of these companies are still involved with people he's calling out for just, I don't know, anything he's calling people out for anything it's it ranges from it ranges from doping to sticky bottles to just kind of being kind of be a jerks to him yeah or or just like being rich like that's also like like i said it just kind of has a bitter tone it's funny because i do know phil really well he's had his his journals on the velo news website for many years and i've worked with him on those for many years don't know if his his personality if his sarcasm if it really if it comes across in the way he means it to when it's on the pages of a book like this so my overall take is i don't love how this book 
reads. It just has kind of that negative tone. And I get it. He had a, a rough road to try and make it to his pro. He went into it late, got dropped from Garmin after one season, managed to get back after another season. And then again, he, he left the World Tour Peloton for good. So I can see why he's got some of that bitterness. I can see why he's a little upset. I don't. I just don't know. I don't see the. I'm not sure what he's what he's accomplishing with this. Okay, I I totally respect that um, that point as well. There were times where, yeah, I I kind of had to pinch myself and ask myself, boy, like if it seems like if you ever you know were mean to Phil Geim at any at any point in cycling, you're going to end up in this book or having said something nasty to him or whatever. Um, I'd say, first of all. As a fan of the sport and as someone who has an insatiable appetite for more knowledge of the way that cycling works, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, I loved this book in terms of the unvarnished, really dark look at the way that cycling, especially at the lower levels of cycling, goes on as a business. I liked that Phil was not pulling punches talking about things like contract negotiations or the lack thereof, about the seemingly unprofessional way in which teams are run, sponsorships are handled, relationships are maintained or not maintained, and just you know, having a good look at also this, the generation in which he was competing, where there were young guys coming up who had never had to deal with doping, old guys in the sport who were veteran dopers or who you know, had raced against dopers and then dopers themselves and how it was this big mixing pot of everyone trying to figure out what was going on. And also at a time when the sport was contracting both at the top end and at the low end. And I feel like one of the takeaways I'll come away from this book with was that at this point in time, the sport's contracting and it just forces everyone to be nasty to each other. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Fred. I think it is at its best when he is talking about those matters of the continental level right. and going up against the World Tour teams and things like Tour California, that sort of thing. I think one of my biggest objections here to this book is when he just continually sort of gets into, oh, well, this guy, he once was a teammate with this guy who was a doper. And it, right. there's a lot of, he just kind of is is a bit speculative in some of his things. A lot of it's hidden in plain sight. We all talked about these things. Uh, just, but to me, it's, it's all secondhand, thirdhand. And when I get into a book that's over 300 pages about cycling, I, I kind of want some some real hard truths that are coming from someone with a direct experience with it. And to me, he's only been sort of involved with it at a, at a surface level. So here's the other part of my, my takeaway from it. Um, as a fan and as someone who consumes cycling media, I loved it. I loved the uh, unvarnished look at it. As an editor and as a journalist, Ooh, yeah. I would, you know, I'm just glad that I was not put in charge of being the editor of this book because, you know, Thinking back to all those ethics classes I took in journalism school, the various libel lawyers I talked to over the years, they would be pulling their hair out on this one because there is a lot of, well, people told me so-and-so was a doper. Well, I had heard that this guy had been using EPO. Well, I had heard about this, that, and the other. And look, there is value in that. Like I said, the fan in me the consumer in me likes the fact that that stuff is in there. I feel like I am more educated as I go out into the world to consume bike media. But the journalist and the editor in me, oh my God, if I was presented with this as a manuscript, I would have just thrown myself out of a window. Like there is, there is so much stuff in here that I would just be like the red, you know, there's so many red flags oh, yeah. in here as a journalist. And even though this is a memoir and memoir allows you to have certain liberties, the general rule of, you know, putting things in writing and putting things out there to publish is like, if it can't be fact-checked, then putting it out there, you're really showing your ass to the world. Well, and also, I, I in some cases, I don't quite understand why he, he goes to the trouble of, for instance, calling out Fabian Conchalara for supposedly having a motor in his bike. I, I, it doesn't necessarily add a lot to the book to me, and it smacks of just kind of that bitterness that I said. And it sort of feels to me like like the guy in college who, you know, likes to talk about the frat parties but didn't actually end up going to one. And it's sort of like, yeah, well, yeah, I heard that happen too, and we all heard that happen, and so-and-so said that. But 
he wasn't there when you know the EPO was getting passed around. He wasn't there when uh, he, he he's just only tangentially related to it. So the way I read this, and this is another tricky part with the book, is that there are parts of this book that are very eye-opening revelations about Phil's own personal experiences in cycling, but then there are many other parts of this book that are Phil's opinions on the way on rumor, on people, on various things. And they are very much his opinions. But when you have a book that blends the two of these things so well together, because look, I give it to Phil. He's a good writer. This isn't like some ghost-written piece of crap. I think he's a good writer, and he's able to blend these two elements together very well. But from a reader's perspective, it makes it very difficult to parse what is Phil's experience and what is Phil's opinion. So, for example, the Conchalara excerpt, you know, he is saying, I think he probably was using a motor. That is opinion. But he's also saying, well, I talked to some riders who said that they, that Conchalara had his private mechanic and kept his bike hidden and blah, 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 blah. And when you blend those two lines together, I can see how and why a reporter or a media person would read that and choose to make it into a story. The thing about me, the thing to me, Spencer, is though, is that like the Cancellara thing, I don't even know if that's like top 10 most inflammatory, egregious, potentially would get someone angry to the point of hiring a lawyer type sections in this book. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I was actually just going to bring up another point that is maybe even more inflammatory. It's this, it's a part he, he likes to really rag on Chris Horner just in general. There's a lot of parts where he, he's jabbing at him, but early on he talks about how he was under the impression that Chris Horner was heavily abusing cortisol ahead of his Vuelta a España win in 2013. Horner, as we all know, didn't didn't make the start in 2014 for the Vuelta due to elevated cortisol levels, and uh, that to me is along the same lines as the Conchalara thing where. Surely, Guyman had talked to some people. There was a general kind of consensus among his peers about it. But yeah. it's not necessarily proven. And having it in a book like this, which ostensibly is designed for a lay audience, you know, there's a lot of parentheticals in this book where Guyman's explaining basic things like drafting and how a pro team works and everything. This book is intended for all levels of cycling fan. So when you start throwing things like that in and the average person reads it, they probably are going to take it as as the word and not necessarily look at it with a eye of criticism like like you or I would knowing knowing the way it works. 100%. I think that there are many sections of this book that are the book version of a bunch of guys sitting around over beers talking about what's going on in pro cycle. Yeah, and you can completely see the appeal in that. I'm sure yep. that's why you like it to a point. That's why I liked it as well. Uh, yeah, it's pretty raw. It definitely doesn't pull hold back any punches. But oh man, he drags so many people. Oh, I, yeah. I just want to read this it's section crazy, where yeah. he's dra dragging David Miller. Ramunos finally got the spot over David Miller. Miller was retiring at the end of the year. So this would have been his farewell tour, but he hadn't been riding well, perhaps too focused on a movie about Lance Armstrong he was involved in and renovations on his house in Girona. <laughs> oh, bad. There's some other part of there about Miller giving him a hard time. Well, yeah, and he also goes hard. on to he also goes on to call out Miller for using a using a ghostwriter in his book and, yeah. and using it as a way to kind of paint a, a much more uh, a favorable picture of Miller in his years uh both as a doper and a clean rider. It's true. And, you know, to Guyman's credit, he wrote his own book, No Ghostwriter Here. Yeah, very true. And it's actually one of several books he's written. So the, the other hard part I had with this book is, like, people getting dragged who, like, I actually like and people I know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, that's, that's part of it. You know, as a cycling fan, like I said, I like having a 360-degree view of the sport. So um, what's your takeaway? Would you, would you recommend this book to somebody? Mm. I think I think I I probably would, but I would you know offer a very strong caveat of being like, well, this is Phil, and this, here's how Phil operates. He yeah. has a lot of opinions. He's very he's very open about them. He's not going to hold back any anything. It, it yeah, it, it does offer an interesting view into the back end of how cycling works. Like I said, it, it's not my favorite read, but um, 
but there there's definitely some strong takes in there and that's a good thing the you know the only other thing i wanted to point out fred and i think actually probably one of the most valuable parts of this book is um and he brings it up a few times is his relationship with tom danielson it's something that has always been kind of a point of contention where as we all know tom danielson uh he admitted to doping and um, essentially he helped Phil Guyman get a spot on the Garmin team the first time around. And Phil really delves into this, this tension that I think all of us experience as journalists, fans, cyclists, whatever, between, um, you know, knowing someone that someone had one point doped and like now they're back in the sport. How do we, how do we look at that person? Do we accept them? Do we still hold a grudge? It's a very fraught topic. There's no right answer. And Phil does a good job, I think, of expressing that. And essentially he just likes Danielson. And that's, um, that's what, that's what it takes for him to kind of get past, uh, Danielson's history, uh, using performance enhancing drugs. And, um, that's not going to sit well with some people. It never has, but, but Phil owns it. And I think that's an important point of conversation and an important thing that we all face is just that, man, this is a, this is a complicated topic because there's still plenty of people involved in the sport, both as cyclists and as team directors or anything, all sorts of staff members who were involved in the dirty years of cycling and, uh, they're still around. Yeah. I think maybe what we could do is uh, create a power ranking for the site of like uh, the people who get dragged the hardest yeah. <laughs> in the Kymet book. Yeah, well, we were, most aggrieved. We were talking party, about that yeah, for the like, Melanie show. Maybe yeah, tune like in for that later. Residents week. of Boulder, Colorado. Chris Horner. Yeah. Chris Horner again. Chris Horner would probably be t- like one through five. Yeah. He, and maybe like a Schleck brother in there. Uh, he's not a fan of Mansebo either. Yeah. Francisco Mansebo gets some heat too. Is anybody? Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Man Sabo oh, fans yeah. out there. Yep, yep. Um, okay, well, I, I also would recommend it with the relative, with the, the caveats of you know this is highly opinionated, one guy's experience through cycling, but uh, as far as enlightening you to what goes on at so you know lower levels of the sport to, to mid levels of the sport, I think it's great. Yeah, I would I would totally recommend it. Um, but yeah, maybe drink a couple beers. The other thing I want to say about this, and, and Hoodie, this is, uh, you know, I want to talk to you about this type of conversation, the sort of loose chatting about things that are unproven, but you people believe them to be true. Reading this book reminded me a lot of being a journalist in the Lance era, especially like 04, 05, when a lot of us not just speculation, but like we all kind of knew. I mean, after the Puerto thing, it was like, oh, okay, the sport is totally full of dopers and there's this guy who's beating them by minutes on the world's biggest stage. Come on. And a lot of what Phil was writing in there reminded me of the conversations that I would have with other journalists or fans of the sport or cyclists, whatever, in like 2005, 2006, just about the state of cycling and especially the Lance Armstrong, where there was nothing you could really prove or point to, but just in your gut, you felt this way, gun to, gun to my head, like, you know, I think the guy is doping and, and using drugs. And you couldn't publish anything like that then because you'd get your pants sued off. But I, I'm curious if you have any memories or sort of general sentiments about what it was like in that era for you uh, having these conversations about Armstrong and the sport in general. Yeah, it was a real uh, tightrope there those last few years because um, a lot of these things we'd always heard about and they were discussed in private, but it was, it was a different era in those days. Like now I think it's so much harder to keep a secret. I think it'd be much harder these days to kind of have this organized doping, to have all these people involved in that process, you know, going back from the Festina when all the teams were organizing it. And even what came out of Armstrong's book and the whole U.S. Auto case that caught me, biggest surprise for me was, was just how many people even knew that Lance was doped back in those days and how he's able to keep that secret under the lid. I think a big part of that was the intimidation that Lance played, you know, when anyone dared to open their mouth, even to challenge him at not even on the doping level, but even just within control of the team, be it a rider or a staff member or a sport director, you know, they were just flicked out of the team. They lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods. And I think there was a lot of intimidation back in those days. And we certainly felt it at the media. I mean, I know we always had to deal with, you know, if we croached a subject they didn't like or ask a kind of question they didn't like, you'd be frozen out. 
And especially back in those days, too, you know, you needed that kind of quote every day from the team. You needed a desire to talk to Bernil or try to talk to Armstrong after the stage because that was the currency of the day. Now, quotes really don't mean anything because everyone knows what everyone says immediately. But back, going back 10 years ago or even more, you know, you still had to kind of figure out, you know, what these guys said, you know, what happened during the race. And the way the media has worked and the way these stories are covered has changed so much since that time. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it was it was the hard time to be a journalist because, you know, like you said, inside your gut, you knew something was rotten inside the palace walls. But then you also saw, you know, like back in the day, you know, David Walsh, the guy who was kind of leading that charge with other journalists as well. You know, Walsh got sued and he lost that suit. The, the Times of London lost a lawsuit against Lance. And that had a huge chilling effect on all the journalists covering the score. Yeah, and it, I feel like it did have a chilling effect on what was written. But then what it made, what, what it did was that whenever journals would get around and talk, it was just like, the you know, get a couple beers into you and you just start talking about like what you knew and what you thought was going on and just all speculation. And like I said, it kind of reminded me of the Guyman book it, it, talking about all these different stories and especially talking about the Conchalara motor debate. I mean, like 10 years from now, we may look back on this and be like, oh, wow, you know, they were all on motor. Motors and they all, you know, it was all organized by like some international gambling ring and, you know, the, the cyclist, lizard people, the lizard people and all the cyclists were just drinking beer and getting fat on the side, and not even training. And it was just, <laughs> you know, this preordained, um, you know, competition where everyone was on a motorbike. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> but, it would be a hell of a book, though. Yeah, wouldn't it? That's true. It really would. Phil, write that book next time. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, what about the role that these tell-all books have had in cycling in general, Hoodie? You know, you've been covering the sport for a number of years, especially in the last decade. I mean, we've had Tyler Hamilton, Thomas Decker, uh, Michael Rasmussen wrote a tell-all. Uh, George, George Hincapie, great George book, Hincapie, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> loyal lieutenant, telling all. <laughs> really salacious look at what's going on in cycling. Now, that, that book was bad. Uh, what, you know, based on your reporting, Hoodie, what tends to happen after a tell-all is written? And what, you know, what role have these books had in cycling in recent years? Yeah, I think there was a really uh, a before and after, I'd say, kind of, I'd pick it around uh, Alvarez from Puerto, 2006, when all those salacious stories just came out. I mean, they, this was all leaked, all leaked to the, uh, to the Spanish media. All these stories about how the blood doping was working, all this, all these the doping lists that were all just printed verbatim in the in Spanish media, and that was really the first time we got a really inside look at how the doping worked. Because after Festina, you know, we had that great book by Willie Vogt, who basically just spilled the beans right there in 1999, breaking the chain. The English version, actually, of that book was really watered down because the libel laws are much stricter in the UK and in the United States compared to France. But that, that Willie Vote book in 1999 was kind of like a Guyman's book where he just, I mean, he just said everything, but, you know, it was based on his own personal experience. And what surprised me was that how the fact that all that stuff came out, you know, 99, that's when Lance came back, and they kind of kept it all tapped down for as long as they actually did. And I think that was just through the, the force and the intimidation and the money and power that Armstrong brought because, I mean, back even from, you know, Lance's time, there were doping cases. Man, every year these guys were just getting popped, popped, popped. But Lance was able to sell that story, that larger story to the larger public that just kind of kept that story tamped down. But, but I think by 2006, with the Floyd Landis case and then the Puerto, it was finally just blown open that there was just no, no way you could possibly deny the fact that doping was not just an integral part of the DNA of cycling. What, uh, what's your favorite tell-all book? Um, I, well, I think that uh, the Hamilton book. Really yeah, that's a good one. The, the, probably yeah. the best written. What was that called? The Secret Race. Yeah. Uh, the one I liked most, I thought that was most poignant, was uh, Laurent Fignon's memoir that he wrote uh, when we were young and carefree. Uh, he wrote that book you know, right before he died of cancer. And he talked about some of these salacious stories, kind of the old school stories that, you know, he kind of, his his uh, career kind of dovetail into the beginning of the Epo era. So his the doping that they were doing in those days was a little bit more old school, not to say that it was right or wrong. 
but some of the stories he was telling about how drinking strychnine and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Rat poison. Some of the old, yeah. Strychnine and just taking, you know, handfuls of barbiturates and, you know, every drug known to man. But those, the doping in those days, they say, you know, you still couldn't turn a uh, donkey into a racehorse, whereas the EPO, you know, we all could be, uh, you know, leading the Peloton over the Tourmalet. I totally agree. Tyler's book was crazy. Just so, so much detail and so deep. Uh, recently also the Thomas Decker book was, it's pretty good. It it definitely really shines a light on that. And the interesting thing about Thomas Decker's book is it, it overlaps a little with, with Phil Guyman's book where they, they were on, uh, Garmin together that first year. And I think partly that's why I'm a little less enthusiastic about Guyman's book. Cause coming off of Decker's book to me, you just get so much more out of a book like Decker's where he was so far into it. And, and to me, it's like the real blockbuster, um, kind of revelations, whereas, um, Phil's is, is not quite as deep into it. And I, I think that's partly why when I came into this book, I had that type of you know, expectation or whatever you'd call it. And that's what colored some of my opinion on, on how he approached it. And just, you know, it's, it's there, but it's not, it's not as deep as Tyler or as Decker for obvious reasons. Yeah. Whereas the revelations in Phil's book are like, you know, when he gets promised a $60,000 salary and then the contract arrives and it's actually 55 or, you know, or that he eats, you know, he likes eating Chick-fil-A, even though he has problems with their uh, social stances on things. Yeah, that's true. Come on, Chick-fil-A. Get it together. Uh, Yeah, the Tyler book was amazing. I just remember all of the sections about like after transfusions, having to convince yourself that you could push harder. You get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm about to blow up now and vomit. And it's like, no, mentally you could tell yourself that you can go harder. See, that is just, you would never get that from almost anyone else. And that to me is, is one of the most fascinating things where you can actually see inside how it really works. Yeah. Uh, With the Thomas Decker book, which we have an excerpt coming out in the upcoming issue of Vela News magazine, uh, there's a great scene in there where he is finally committing to doping and he is inking his like doping contract with Fuentes for the first time. And it's at this airport lounge and his agent is negotiating the whole thing. And he's just like spacing out and checking out like waitresses and just like looking at people walking around wondering wondering where they're going and just having an out-of-body experience thinking to himself, this is the point at which I'm committing to doping and I'm like more focused on that stewardess over there. It's so blasé. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy. And the, and the other uh, blockbuster expose, of course, was the U.S. out reason decision. Ooh. It came out, of course, uh, you know, not a, not a book, but man, it was a blockbuster. Great narrative. Of, real, uh, really, uh, yeah. Kind of a dry read, guys. That, that one was kind of dry. That struck me, <laughs> the thing that struck me most about all these revelations was just how deeply ingrained doping actually was. Cause I still had some notion that perhaps, you know, the GC guys were doping, you know, the top winners were on the special sauce and that the rest of the guys can make that choice perhaps or not have to dope. But then you realize really that the entire team was doping. The entire Peloton was, dope. if you didn't dope, you couldn't even get a job in the sport. And that was what really struck me that, you know, just how depraved and actually how integral part of the sport that doping had become. Yeah, and you can understand why a rider like Phil Guyman would be pretty bitter about it. Yep. And that uh, is reflected in the tone of the book, I'd say. Well, all right. That's uh, that's enough reading for enough now. reading material for reading, all of you, yeah. <laughs> all your homework out there. <laughs> Listeners of the Bell News Podcast, your homework is to go read every blockbuster revelatory tell-all in the cycling canon and be ready for next week's episode. There'll be a quiz. Great. Okay, Spencer, we have a sponsor for today's episode of the Vela News Podcast. That sponsor is Health IQ, the life insurance company that offers great rates to healthy people like us. Spencer, you raced your bike this past weekend. Did sure you? did. Yeah, I got out on Saturday. Yeah, yep, it's good stuff. Tell the good listeners how did it go? Well, I, I managed to stuff my front wheel in a hole on uh-huh. some corner and kind of racked my quad on the handlebar. So, got a nice bruise. Not quite to the point of needing life insurance, but it was a crash. So, uh, yeah. But know. then what happened? Then I ca- carried on and had a good race. And then what happened? I don't like soccer. And prices. then you won. Yep. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah. Spencer Paulison, race winner, sitting next to me. Single speed. Single speed. Still counts. Anyway, for fit 
competitive athletes like Spencer Paulus and Health IQ has a URL where you can go submit your race results, submit screen grabs of your riding stats, your Strava, Garmin, whatever, and get a great quote. And so, Spencer, what is that URL? Just head to healthiq.com slash velonews. You get that free quote on life insurance and uh, keep on riding, keep on racing. Keep on winning races, Spencer Paulison. Ah. Yay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Back to the show. Guys, we had some news go on. Not a lot of news because it is S-L-O-W slow time <laughs> of the season. I don't even know. I mean, are the road guys even like riding their bikes right now? They're on the beach somewhere. Yeah. Um, first of all, we had movie stars, longtime team bus, Isabio Unzue, give some interesting comments about what he saw as a way to fix Grand Tour racing. Mm. And that is to allow replacement riders to come in during the first week to replace riders who may be sick, crashed. Um, have had some type of problems. Hoodie, you were at this press conference, correct? You, you wrote about this. What's going on here? Is Unzue, is he uh, having a few too many glasses of Rioja? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he might have hit the Rioja before he sat down with the journalist last week. Uh, but it's, an, it's actually an idea that he, he kind of bounced. It, he talked to me about it even last year. I just kind of rolled my eyes and just thought, what's he talking about? But it's an idea that's unique. Uh, it, it's something I haven't really heard from anybody else. It kind of comes out of left field. It kind of really goes against the whole idea of what a bike race is and the whole challenge of surviving three weeks and, and making it through uh, the rigors of the weather and the mountains, the topography, the wind, uh, the extremities of uh, the Grand Tour racing concept. But he says that we have to just kind of catch the sport up to a modern context, you know, we're spending, his argument is spending millions of dollars on these salaries. You know, why not have teams race on equal terms all the way to Paris? Of course, the idea would be if the GC guys wouldn't be replaced, of course, but some of the worker bees, perhaps, you, you know, you get sick, you crash, you fall, you bring in a bench player, you know, why not? To me, to me, it seems a little wacky, but uh, maybe... Well, there's some ways, you know, we could probably even the playing field a little, make this a little more fair. Uh, one idea I had, guys, was if a rider does need to withdraw from, say, the Tour de France after a week or so, and the, the new guy who comes in, that new guy would have to ride the exact same setup, same size bike, Ooh. same everything, same apparel, all that stuff. So we're talking about maybe a, a big Belgian guy who needed to help Nairo get through the cobblestones in the first week, drops out. Well, this little Spanish guy who comes in is going to have to ride that 60-centimeter frame. He's going to have to ride that size extra-large Movistar kit, and that would be pretty entertaining. And it would be a little bit of a <laughs> tricky uh, tricky one for them to figure out the positioning on the bike. That's true. I think that seat masts would be a thing of the past, and everyone would be on one of those Mavic neutral ah, with the dropper post. Dropper post. Uh, hey, you know, bike technology, yeah. that's, it would respond. You had another good idea, Spencer, sort of a Madison mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. style. Well, let's let's make this exciting for the fans. Uh, if we're going to introduce new riders to the race, especially on a, like a boring flat stage, how about we just spontaneously have the new riders appear on the side of the road at some mm. point, and uh, the, replacement, the, the riders who are getting replaced, they just give them the old Madison sling to get them into the group, get them up to speed. A little bit of... Uh, yeah, just make it a little wild and, uh, and you know, maybe have a have a special classification for the Madison that day. I like that idea because it's sort of like the baton toss that we see in mm. track and field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like it's the cumulative time of these riders, but the uh, exchange has to go on on the road. So maybe there could be instead of a baton toss, it's like a number swap. So like you have oh, to yeah. ride up next to the yeah. guy and like hit your number on the back and spray it with the, the adhesive. Oh, the adhesive. Oh, I was thinking you'd uh, have to pin it on the roll. That would be tricky. Yeah, that would be really, be tricky, really tricky. But tricky. I do like the Madison style toss. Well, look, this is a terrible idea for so many different reasons. The, mo the most terrible of which is like, what happens if one of these replacement guys, it, well, not what happens, when he inevitably wins a stage? Yeah, wow. What a surprise. He's so fresh on Alpe Duet. I wonder why. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, Enrico, Spanish guy, just hopped in the race today and he won the sprint. Wow, this is really, really great job. Uh, so, Unzue. Maybe cut down on the Rioja before the interview. I like the creativity, though. I'd yeah. say let's keep these ideas flowing. Why not? That's true. Uh, it's the off season right now, guys. So 
We've been checking in on Twitter with some of our favorite riders to see what they're up to. Not a lot of riding going on. No. Peter Sagan, he got like a he got a tattoo. Ooh, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Where did he get the tattoo? I don't know. No. Maybe California. He's coming out to California to do a charity ride. No, I mean like what part of his body? Oh. <laughs> I think on his arm. Oh. It looked that way from the photo. Um Hoodie, this has me asking some questions about the 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 role and the size of the off season for today's riders compared to like 10, 15 years ago. Because, you know, with all of their sponsor requirements, early season races, if they're racing the classics, they're getting ready. It it seems to me like the off season has been changed around a little bit. Just the amount of time that these guys get off of their bikes to go get tattoos and do stupid stuff and go to like uh, Curacao and swim around with dolphins. What's your take on what's going on with the off season? Are we, is this the death of the off season? Yeah, it sure seems like that. We're not, we're not hearing stories about Jan Ulrich you know, eating German chocolate cake and coming back to the uh, winter camp, you know, 10 pounds overweight. These guys are uh, the, the, you know, three weeks off the bike, I think is about average these days. I was, in fact, just talking to Chad Hager today. He's, he said he's doing three-hour rides already. He goes next week, he goes up to four-hour rides. It's only, uh, it's not even Thanksgiving. So uh, I think it's, it reflects how the sports change, too, in terms of just the level is so high that it's so hard to get back to that level if you let yourself go. You know, you could, you know, you could take off two whole months and not train and, you know, have some live like a human being. But the work it would take to get back to that level where you were, to get back to being competitive, is so hard that everyone, I think, just kind of tries to stay close as they can to kind of a higher level all the way across the entire season. That's why we're seeing it that way. Also, with the, now the World Tour being stretched out into January, February, the Middle Eastern races, there's important you know, sponsor obligations. They want to do well there. It really seems like... I mean, I, I wonder if at some point, if the cycling season is just going to be 12 months, the the UCI will find a way to have some race in China or something like that in December. And it, it, it's just going to become a year-round sport eventually. UCI is trying to kill cyclocross. Ooh, that's yeah. right. If they get, they get the road season going all 12 months, they're going to they're gonna start sweeping cyclocross under the rug. Well, I feel bad for some of these guys, especially those who live in colder climates like Chad, I mean, it's not exactly balmy out here in Colorado. He's having to go do three-hour rides. Where in the old days, like I said, he could just go down to go down to the beach and hang out for a bit. So, mm, poor guys, poor millennials. Well, you know who definitely doesn't have any trouble with the cold? Swain Tuft. Yeah, Swain Tuft. No problems with the cold. Hoodie, you had an amazing chat this week with Swain Tuft, Canada's, uh, I would say, most valuable export. You know, there's oil, timber, and Swain Tufts. I think that uh, those Canadian exports. And he Hockey told also, yeah, he told some great stories. I'd like you to take us through some of the Swain Tufts anecdotes that came out of your uh, your call with him. Yeah, I mean, Swain talk about tell all books. He would have a great book. In fact, he was already joking that he already has a title for his book uh, called "How the F Did I End Up Here." <laughs> <laughs> Spade is a, he's quite a character. He's uh, such a great backstory. He's got these funny stories about um, how he kind of dropped out of high school. He was kind of a hippie. He's on this kind of walkabout journey. He was for many years just riding around in the outback of Canada, up in Yukon and BC, riding around uh, in this old beat up bike and just trying to, you know, he was young and adventurous and carefree and and uh, just had these wild experiences up on uh, out in these uh, on these out in these roads, and and some of these stories had kind of taken on a life of their own. So I, I called up Swain to do another interview about another topic that's going to be in the next issue of Eleanor's. So I just said, hey Swain, you know some of these stories that we've heard over the years, you know, I like to just kind of go through these and kind of parse these, you know, from truth and fiction. So he said, oh yeah, that's fine. And uh, we started to go through these things, and they were just hilarious, talking about how. How he was uh, had to beat back a wolf that attacked his camp up in the Yukon <laughs> with a hockey stick. So <laughs> it attacked his dog, and I love the picture he sent of him riding with his dog because his dog was huge. Yeah, it's like an eighty pound mutt. 
yeah. in the back of a trailer, a two-wheel trailer, which is going to be a lot of rolling resistance on the back of basically what was a mountain bike from what I recall. Yeah. It's uh, it's wild. It's good stuff. This uh, story's up on velonews.com right now if you want to check it out. You know, one one thing, Hoodie, I was wondering, I think we've covered this in, in past articles, but it, it doesn't hurt to revisit. How did a guy like Swain Tuft end up as a pro cyclist at the world tour level? Because he did all these crazy adventures. He was a he was into rock climbing. What, how did he end up on a pro cycling team? Yeah, he, he, he told me that story too. It's a pretty interesting story because he said that um, – it was on these long trips. He would ride his bike from Alaska all the way down to the lower 48, you know, just pulling, like you said, pulling this 80-pound dog in the back of his bike. As you do, so, as one does. <laughs> Resistance training. As one does. So that, that, that makes you uh, very strong. And so what he said, he had, an, he had these odd jobs. He was working as uh, planting trees. He would uh, ba- hailing, bailing hay. He would get a job, you know, mowing lawns, you know, shoveling snow. And at one point, he was working in a bike shop, and he said one of his buddies had this, like, really pimped-out Cervelo TT bike. And so this is about 2000, I think. Swain was probably about 20, 21 years old, 22 maybe. And uh, he said that was the first time he ever rode, like, on a real kind of semi-pro race bike setup. And he said he went on that, on that TT bike and said he couldn't believe the power and the speed that he could get on a bike like that because he was just used to riding these old beat up bikes. Well, yeah, compared to like the mountain bike with the bear dog. I mean, that's got to <laughs> feel like a spaceship. <laughs> like an, an X-Wing versus towing a bear dog behind him. Yeah, so he exactly. So he, he kind of got hooked on – he was already hooked on cycling anyway. And then he kind of got this chance to ride this these, you know, some nice uh, road bikes and started uh, getting into some local kind of BC, Vancouver scene – uh, just local racing, crits. Uh, what he was really good at it was like time trialing as well as uh, these just big monster road stages. And he said he got involved in a local club. His dad uh, started to help him to go to these races. He said he went down to the tour of the Gila. He and his dad were just camping out, camping out in the desert by themselves, riding these races, uh, pirating these races, privateer. And then he said he raced in the uh, Canadian National Championships. Got in a big breakaway with uh, Gordon Frazier and some of these guys. And the word got around. There's like this beast out in the BC who can just like <laughs> pull these pull these huge watts and he can stay with the pros until 5Ks to go. And that got him onto the Canadian team. They took him to the Tour of the Avenir. And then he got onto a, a small team up in the BC. And then they got he got a, a job as a stagiaire with the Mercury Viatel. Mm. And how that ended, you know, with Horner and that crazy team with uh, John Warden. And then that's how he got into pro cycling, got on with Symmetrics, finally. Well, I, for one, am very glad that he hopped on that random Cervelo time trial bike so long ago because he's a great addition to the Peloton. Yeah, we may have never had him if he hadn't have been uh, put on that sweet ride. Uh, so I guess the big takeaway for all those aspiring pro cyclists out there is, hey, fish out the burly trailer get out the old heavy mountain bike, load your giant dog in the back, and just start doing like cross-transcontinental co- intervals. Yeah, Rocky style. <laughs> just go ride your bike. It's like Rocky Four Through Canada with your huge dog, and don't forget the hockey stick. Uh, like Spencer said, that story is on villainews.com right now, that, that Q&A. Swain Tuft, he's been with us for a long time. Uh, this is going to be his last year in the Peloton. Did he give any hints on, you know when he will be riding off into the proverbial Canadian sunset? He did not. He said he's, he's kind of taking it year by year. Yeah. He says he's really enjoying his job. It's uh, Arika. He's helping these young guys. He's kind of the road captain now. Kind of does the Giro welter combination. He's just there as an anchor for that team. And I talking to Matt White, the sport director, he said he likes to have kind of these, a few older guys on his team's, to kind of be role models for these young guys coming up, especially these guys these days coming up, you know, they don't know what it's like to race. They're really good at, you know, reading their power meters and they're good at training and they're good at preparing themselves to be professionals, but they don't know what it's like to be a pro. So, uh, especially with that team, a lot of young riders on uh, Orica, Matt White likes to have guys like Swain Tuft around just to kind of be role models for these guys. Plus if the bus ever breaks down in the woods and like the wild animals start circling around. Oh, yeah. yeah. Esteban Chavez would be just fine. Yeah. Swain will get out there. <laughs> you would hop on Swain's shoulders and just fight yeah. them off. 
Guys, before we get on to the final part of the show, we need to talk about our presenting sponsor this week. It's PowerTap, makers of the P1 pedals. Spencer, you're a guy who travels a lot to go ride your bike, right? I do. I do from time to time. Where'd you go this summer? I went to France, did a nice uh, week of riding in France. So, uh, yeah, when you're traveling like that, it's sometimes a little tricky to get everything set up, especially, you know, if you're putting your bike in a box, things like that. The great thing about these P1 pedals, they're just so easy to travel with. You just take them off the bike, pack it up, and then put them right back on. You can have all your power data whenever you're climbing the tourmalet or the obese or any of that cool stuff. And, uh, and they're just really easy to work on. If you, if you run out of batteries, you just grab a couple of AAA batteries and that's all you need to do to fix them up. If you are going to travel where you're not even riding your own bike, you may be wondering, oh my God, how am I going to like keep my data? Oh, they're order? perfect for that. Yeah, yeah just take these pedals, throw them in your exactly. bag. That's all you need. You're good to go. So yeah, the P1 pedals made by PowerTap, the most versatile power meter on the market. Back to the show. Okay, guys, we need to bring her on home here. We have some Cat 3 questions because, man, you know, Phil Guyman, he was a pro. He made the transition from amateur to pro. He had to have been a Cat 3 at some point along the way. sure he was. I'm sure he was. And I don't know what Cat 3 advice Phil would have had for some of these questions, but I do know the Cat 3 advice that Spencer and I have. Yeah, we... We'll, we'll, we'll lay some knowledge down yeah. here right now. All right, Hoodie, what do we got for questions this week? All right, we've got a few questions, boys. The first one is from Bill Hilberg. He says, the holidays are coming up, and the amount of irresistible edible delicacies will be immense. What is an acceptable amount of weight to gain during the offseason? I usually put on five pounds, but have been, reforced, have been forced to reduce my working hours, and I'm thinking that might be closer to 15 pounds this holiday season. Any advice? Oh, Bill, what are you doing, buddy? So, look, if you're a Cat 3, you are serious about cycling, man. You are serious about racing. You're so serious to the point where you have no problem neglecting your children and your family and your loved ones. So my Cat 3 advice is instead of thinking about how much weight you can gain, challenge yourself. See how much weight you can lose. I say skip Christmas altogether. I'd go the other tack here, Fred. I would say just embrace it and say that for next season, you're going to focus on being a sprinter because we all know it's okay for sprinters to be heavier. So that's just that's just how your goals are going to be restructured because, mm. hey, you know, 15 pounds heavier, I must be a better sprinter now. Pretty, str- pretty simple, I'd say. Yeah, fast twitch and a belly. I like it. All right, all right. Okay, second question is before a sprint, pros cinch up their shoes backslash intimidate so should i buy shoes one size too big just to intimidate everybody else in the sprint Mm. ask a cat three good question that's a good question i think that buying shoes that are a little bit too big is okay but you're going to then lose some power transfer which you know we're cat threes We're, we're we're worried about that stuff so i would think that what you you can also do is just find some other intimidation things to do in the run to the sprint. What I like to do, shake the legs. Mm. Give the legs That's a little a shake out, you know? Like like flop around your quad muscles with Toss your, your bottles. Get rid of your bottles. Yep. Save some weight. Yep. Throw yep. the bottles. Um, maybe even, I don't know, like throw all your clothes. Like if it's been a cold race, you have arborers and vests. Oh, yeah. Just ditch that stuff. Just throw that stuff on the side of the road. You know, the only thing I would say about the larger size shoe is it's probably going to be heavier. And we all know that it's all about lightweight. So I would go with the smaller size, actually. And then maybe just pretend to do the dial. You could, like, loosen it and then tighten it or something just so it clicks. You know, it's just for the effect. It doesn't actually have to be tightening. Okay. All right. Last uh, last Cat 3 question. Last question comes from Try Russell. Is it okay to ride a cross rig in a mountain bike race, especially if it's your first one after years of being a roadie? No, you shouldn't be doing anything other than road racing and riding road bikes. you got to stay focused. You're a Cat 3, focus on that Cat 3 life. Cat 3's mountain biking, bad idea. You're going to get hurt. Try Russell's has lots of great questions for us. Love he that does, guy. He does, he does. I think I'm going to a different tag. I think it's perfectly okay because it shows that you're getting ready for cross season. So if anyone asks you, just be like, uh, yeah, man, just brushing up on my skills. Got to be like J-Pows, you know, like ride these gnarly descents on my cross bike. And then you always have an excuse of just like, well, I probably would have been there in the end, you know, on that final climb. But uh, I was on my cross bike, you know. Yeah. Excuses are good. Excuses Excuses are good. good. All right. That was Ask a Cat 3. As always, please submit your Ask a Cat 3 questions to webletters at competitorgroup.com or 
tweet at us. Just tweet us at Velo News, hashtag ask a cat three. And now we've got to get to our last segment here. Our Velo News podium. It's the off season. We got to talk about something. So we might as well come up with some uh, top threes of our favorite stuff. So this week, the category for this Velo News podium is cold weather apparel. We're going to throw this up on Twitter for you guys to vote on. So let us know who you thought of the best picks for cold weather apparel or any gear, really. I'd say let's open this up to any sort of cold weather riding gear, Mm -hmm. not just apparel. So let's get into it. Uh, Hoodie, do you want to go first or or should should one of us lead off? Uh, I can go first. Uh, Hoodie Hoodie does not like being cold. I got like a 10 10 degree Celsius rule. I don't know what that is. It's about 65 degrees, man. If it's (laughs) colder than that, I don't go. But when I when I do go out in the cold, I, for me, essential gear is like a neck gaiter. Got to keep the neck warm. Very European of uh, you. Very European, yes. Uh, I'm big on the shoe covers too. Got to keep the uh, shoes nice and clean and warm. And also for me, it's just uh, I need a big burly uh, uh, vest. The bigger the, vest. the vest, the better. Vest keep guy. that keep that cool. Keep that core warm. All right, interesting. Wait, so are you riding around with one of those like? neon puffy vest that yeah like is, back to the future like like marty mcfly wears in back to the future no i'm thinking more along the lines of like what what constitutes formal fashion in boulder oh. or in a ski town in the winter where they're like oh my patagucci vest this thing i got on sale for only nine hundred dollars but it's you know made from the tears of babies and and you know the finest of down no it's it's you know fair trade recycled okay all right am i am i gonna go i'm gonna go yeah you go first i'm gonna say Thermal bibs. Yeah. It, it's very important to keep that kind of area of your body warm, if you know what I'm saying. Second is heavy, heavy gloves because my hands get really cold. Just years and years of freezing my hands and skiing and, and cycling, and uh, I just can't handle the cold anymore with my hands. And my third piece of important cold weather gear, the number one piece, cold weather gear, just in general, not just apparel, is uh, my dad's car because he'll come and pick me up if I get too cold. And that certainly has happened on a few rides before. Thanks, dad. Uh, will Spencer's dad come pick pick me up if I'm mm, cold? Probably not. No. Doesn't really live in the state. Hey, Mr. Pallison. I'm buddies with Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if we're buddies. We work together. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really think he likes me uh, yeah. <laughs> or my takes. Well, if you were riding with me, he would. Okay. All right, what are your three? All right. Um, third place, I have stretchy gloves. We all know stretchy gloves, those cheap one, two dollar gloves that they sell at Walmart for like, it's like two dollars for a, a pack of 90 of them. I found, I find these to be completely irreplaceable when the weather gets cold because I lose stuff, Spencer. We've all seen me coming in here with like, oh, I got one arm warmer and one knee warmer. I'm going to go out and ride. I just like, all my cycling apparel tends to run away. So when I buy a package of like 50 stretchy gloves, I just know that I'm always going to have a stretchy glove. That actually might be my number one. Stretchy gloves That's are number amazing. one? You're starting with number one. No, that'll, that'll be my number three. Oh, wow. Um, my number two is a good base layer, a good craft like uh, like wool or microfiber base layer because I, I run hot. I actually tend to run hot. And so I find that when I throw on the base layer, even if I have a minor coat on, um, sometimes I'm sweating by the mid part of the cold ride just because I'm kind of a hot body. Uh, My number one, and this came from an experience I had when I was in New York City and riding back from northern New Jersey, and it got very cold. It was very windy. I had to stop at a 7-Eleven because I had man pain um, due to the cold, and I had to get a bunch of napkins (laughs) and use those napkins as windshield. Nice. I'm nice. not going to elaborate any further. So uh, my number one with a bullet. The napkins. 7-Eleven napkins. There you go. To combat man pain. I would uh, throw out a, a bonus one here. And it's more hypothetical. If I could grow a large beard, uh-huh. that would be a nice piece of cold weather riding gear. Because it would keep my face warm. Swain Tuft uh, could definitely warm himself with his large beard. Because he's had a couple over the years or he's just always kind of has the like uh the mountain man canadian stubble thing going on um well 
Guys, that was another Valor News podcast. We would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on valornews.com. Subscribe to the Valor News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Valor News on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Velo News Podcast is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velo News Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Pretty Classic Soul Drums. Soul Drums.